Episode 14 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 3.4, Summary of the Xenophytes and Their Technology, Tactics, and Innovations. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode, we will discuss a summary of what makes the Xenophyte period critical to shaping war in the Book of Mormon. We will talk technology, tactics, and innovations, but I also want to make sure that we understand these things as they fit in the Book of Mormon's scheme of preparation, covenants, and unity, as well as how these things, ideas, and events shaped how future government, military, and religious leaders saw their world in the Book of Mormon. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Why is the Xenophyte period so important? How do this handful of poorly detailed battles, engagements, and period of conflict merit such interest? In this episode, I hope to provide a summary of the key references and developments mentioned in the record for the first time. Because of the focus of the small plates of Nephi being on spiritual and religious matters, rather than military and political ones, it is uncertain how many of the following discussed items existed for centuries prior to Mormon referencing them in these stories. The Lost Book of Lehi might have explained the development of many of what we will discuss, but we don't have that book, and so it is in the Book of Mosiah and the story of the Xenophytes that we get all of this. It is also possible that much existed earlier and that it is only presented now because of record keepers focusing on other, more important details. It is also possible that even if that is true, the period of Xenophyte innovation was crucial to the period of Nephite military professionalization discussed in part 5 of this podcast series. Now, let me summarize the events just for the sake of context. The Nephites fled the land of Nephi under Mosiah 1 at about 220 BC. They ended up fleeing to another land, which they didn't know existed when they left the land of Nephi. That land and its leading city was called Zarahemla. The people of Zarahemla were descended from people led by Mulek, a child of King Zedekiah of the kingdom of Judah, the same origin location as the Nephites and Lamanites. There must have been friction between the Mulekites and the Nephites. I would expect that the Mulekites were not happy with the fact that all of the later kings came from the Nephites. This may be an important part of the story, which we will come back to in a minute or so. Zenith, a Nephite, seemed to be one who longed for his former home, of which he probably only had childhood memories. He participated in an invasion in 201 BC that failed to actually invade the Lamanite lands, as Zenith himself proposed an alternative plan that generated tremendous disunity among the invading force. A year or so later, Zenith led another group, maybe numbering in the tens of thousands, to the land of Nephi, this time to colonize. He cut a deal with the Lamanite king, Laman II, and his people to settle in two cities, 
Nephi, and Shilom. This colony endured numerous campaigns, battles, and engagements. They were always outnumbered, sometimes by more than two to one. The Lamanite interaction with the Xenophites was probably not in a vacuum. Laman, too, probably led a military expedition against Zarahemla as well, which was repulsed by what I suppose to have been a combined Nephite-Mulekite army. After the successful expulsion of the invading Lamanite force, Benjamin, who is king of this combined Nephite-Mulekite coalition, led his people through a period of civil war, as I label it. The Book of Mormon says that there was much contention and many dissensions, in the words of Mormon, chapter 1, verse 16. Were these contentions and dissensions about the Nephites dominating the Mulekites? Were these tribal differences or something else? We don't know. We do know that King Benjamin healed the civil discord through the help of the teaching of prophets. Some of the dissenters went over to the Lamanites. It is possible, though we have no idea whether or not it was true, that these dissenters may have been part of what inspired Laman II and Laman III to take action against the Xenophites. As we are told later in the Book of Mormon, the Nephite dissenters may have stirred up the Lamanites to anger against the closest Nephites, the Xenophites. If this was true, then this would be yet another first for the Xenophites in the Book of Mormon record. The Xenophites fought and lost many engagements under Noah and Limhi. They may also have had dissensions to the Lamanites in addition to Amulon and the priests of Noah that we are not told about. All of these known and possible reasons would have reduced the population of the Xenophites. The Xenophites fragmented. They did not respond well to the teaching of the prophet Abinadi, and a portion, about 450 souls, broke away and departed from the Xenophites. The number, as given, seems to imply a comprehensive count, but the term souls might have designated heads of households, as was common in ancient texts. If so, the people who followed Alma may have counted in the thousands. Mosiah, too, sent a small reconnaissance expedition to go and find the people of Zenith. This expedition was led by a Mulekite named Ammon. I love the reference to sending this expedition. We are told in Mosiah chapter 7 verse 1 that Mosiah 2 had ruled for three years and the people had, quote, wearied him with their teasings, close quote, about the Xenophites, and that was what caused him to send the expedition. The 1828 dictionary defines teasing as vexing with importunity. Importunity is defined in the same dictionary as application for a claim or favor, which is urged with troublesome frequency or pertinacity. Pertinacity is firm or unyielding adherence to opinion or purpose, obstinacy. When I read the teasings part, my mind usually goes to playground behavior from my childhood, though that might fit, what literally happened was that people were making regular and unending requests to know about the fate of the Xenophytes, probably without saying, yeah, 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 that kind of thing. Ammon helped Limhi and Gideon to lead the Xenophyte main colony back, and Alma I was guided by the Lord back to the land of Zarahemla. 
in Mosiah chapter 25, there is a reunion of all the disparate Nephite groups. We are told in this chapter that there are fewer Nephites than there are Mulekites, and that the combined Nephites and Mulekites are less than half as numerous as were the Lamanites. We have previously discussed some reasons for the Lamanites to outnumber the Nephites and Mulekites. What I ask you to consider now is how would the combination of Nephites and Mulekites into a single people called the Nephites generate tension and possible contention and dissension down the road? There are lots of reasons that people do not listen to prophets of God. Usually, when I don't, it is because I am lazy or I am distracted towards something else, or I am prideful and think I know better. I am sure that you are thinking of reasons why you might not listen to the words of prophets. Imagine how that plays when you have an easy excuse like, he doesn't look like me, sound like me, talk like me, or act like me. As I have interacted with people of different cultures in the church, it is fascinating how easy it is for people to be offensive and offended without intending to because the communication crosses cultural boundaries. These are all easy ways to discount listening to uncomfortable truths. This is the background context for our summary of some of the details previously presented. Now, I want to jump into the specifics. City fortification. City fortification is mentioned in the Xenophyte record, much as in the small plates of Nephi, but not much detail is given. For example, Zenith tells us in Mosiah chapter 9, verse 8, and I quote, And we began to build buildings and to repair the walls of the city, yea, even the walls of the city of Lehi-Nephi and the city of Shilom. Close quote. Now, I am referring to the city of Lehi-Nephi almost exclusively as the city of Nephi. However, in the record, it is often referred to in either term. Obviously, walls pre-existed the Xenophites, as they didn't build walls. Rather, they repaired the pre-existing walls. What did this mean? What did these walls look like? Were they stone construction, like those of the ancient city of Jerusalem? Were they a mound of earth piled up around the city? Were they works of timbers? We don't know. We will talk in a later episode about the evolution of walls under the Nephite general Moroni. We have none of those details for the walls in the Xenophyte period. What we do know is they existed around both cities and they needed repair and they were repaired. Even with the fortifications, people fled from the fields of Shilom to the city of Nephi, rather than to their own city. The women and children of the city of Nephi were sent to the wilderness for safety, rather than kept behind the walls of the city. The walls did not seem to provide any significant delay of the Lamanites when they attacked the city of Nephi in Noah's final day during what I call the fourth battle of the Nephite colony nor did Noah even seem to think it might delay them sufficient to ready his army. What does all of this mean? Here are a few theories. Actually, they're hypotheses, but since we're not being scientific here, I'll still stick with theories. The fact that the people fled from the fields to the city of Nephi might suggest proximity of the fields being closer to Nephi, as suggested by the sketches used in the battle analyses, 
It might also be because most of the men of Shilom were in the fields and they would not have had time to return to their city and defend the walls and the men of Nephi might have been present to do so. The fleeing of women and children to the wilderness may reflect that all men of military service age and ability were going to war, and if they were to fall, no one but the women and children would be left to defend the walls. Therefore, the wilderness was safer than the city as individual families could more easily escape pursuing fighters. The attack in the day of Noah, the fourth battle of the Nephite colony, presents an interesting case. We will discuss the prophet and Chief Judge Alma II's battle at the Sidon River crossing and how it may have been the case that Zarahemla didn't have walls in a later episode. That battle came in 87 BC, or about 58 years after the fourth battle of the Nephite colony. Much later, we will discuss the fourth battle of Zarahemla as the Lamanite armies broke into the city and Coriantumr killed the chief judge and governor Pacumani by smiting him against the walls in Helaman chapter 1 verse 20 and 21. In that story, we have one of the few references of walls around Zarahemla and we are told that Coriantumr did cut down the watch by the entrance of the city. That happened in 51 BC, or about 94 years later than the events with King Noah. It is unclear, even then, if there were gates in the walls. Maybe they weren't common in Nephite fortifications. By the way, gates are not a necessity in ancient fortifications, as there are lots of different examples of entrances to city walls. Yet you might say that Mormon uses the word gate in our Zenophite story, as we are told in Mosiah chapter 21, verse 23, and I quote, And the king, having been without the gates of the city with his guard, discovered Ammon and his brethren, and supposing them to be priests of Noah, therefore he caused that they should be taken, and bound, and cast into prison. And had they been the priests of Noah, he would have caused that they should be put to death. Close quote. What does it mean if it doesn't mean an actual gate? Before I answer that, I want to point out that this is the only reference to a gate as if in an actual wall in the Book of Mormon. All of the other times the word gate appears in the record, it is in a spiritual teaching, as in straight is the gate and narrow is the way, and other similar references. I encourage you to do a word search on it. Later, in the Zenophite story, the people escape through the walls of the city, but they do so, and I quote from Mosiah chapter 22, verse 6, Behold, the back pass through the back wall on the back side of the city. The Lamanites, or the guards of the Lamanites, by night are drunken. Therefore, let us send a proclamation among all this people, that they gather together their flocks and herds, that they may drive them into the wilderness by night. Close quote. Maybe the gate is a metaphorical term, a place of entrance, not unlike the reference to the back pass, which could have been a guarded opening in the wall rather than the Near Eastern heavily defended gate discussed in a previous episode. If this is true, then only an armed and prepared force would deter entry into this gap, or the front gate, and the army of Noah was clearly neither armed nor ready at the time of the Lamanite attack. 
It is also possible, just as the Xenophyte army had been allowed to shrink in size, the walls may have been allowed to fall into disrepair, and therefore no longer have been a deterrent or an obstacle to an invading force. Lots of possibilities. I expressed in the previous episode my mistaken earlier thoughts about the word king and what that meant to me as a teenager reading the Book of Mormon and what that means to me now. Such confusion may be associated with many words in the Book of Mormon. One of the things I have appreciated the more I have studied is that fortifications, forts, castles, walls, and gates have taken on a broader set of meanings. And this is especially true the more I have seen of variations of those things. I would suggest that as you read such words, consider what images come into your mind. Then ask yourself whether or not those images may or may not be accurate for the context under study. It's also useful to think whether or not that accuracy matters for what is being taught. That is another point of variation here. This will be true for nearly every war-related word, sword, armor, shield, etc. I often think of these things as depicted in famous art or movies, rather than in the variety or likely construct given a specific culture, technology, and resources available to the people in question. Intelligence Apparatus One of Mormon's three points of emphasis is preparation. I remind you that the three points are preparation, covenants, and unity. I suggest that Mormon regularly reinforces the message of preparation by placing emphasis on spies. I want to remind the listener that I started my career as an army officer as someone who specialized in reconnaissance and security, effectively battlefield spying. Mormon is not really talking about James Bond or Jason Bourne when he addresses spies, though maybe in some small sense. He is really talking about people collecting information for commanders to use on a battlefield or in operational maneuver or strategies. In today's world, this is what militaries do and not what we currently call the work of spies in general. That said, Spies in the Book of Mormon, or reconnaissance or intelligence collection in today's terms, are the genesis for combat operations. No one begins a battle without first conducting aggressive and significant intelligence collection. You want to know your opponent's composition, disposition, strength, and intentions, what they have, where they are, how much they have, and what they want to do, why they want to to do it and how they would prefer to do it. Zenith knew all of these things, especially in his second battle. We will discuss Moroni in much greater detail in later episodes. He was a very important example of battlefield, operational, and strategic preparation. Zenith, I think, was the person from whom he learned these things. Zenith is a great example of preparation in every aspect of the sense. Zenith was himself a spy, which leads a reader to believe that reconnaissance and intelligence networks were not begun with him. This is a plausible conclusion. Zenith tells us that he knew about the Lamanites, who they were, what they wanted, and the opportunities that existed in partnership with them. He admits to having been played by Laman too, 
But other than falling for the false pretense of the enemy, Zenith was never surprised. His son, Noah, failed to accomplish the same level of understanding. However, he established a successful and useful surveillance tower system. Not all of Zenith's lessons were apparently lost. Even in his moment of extremis, Noah saw from the tower the Lamanites approaching. It wasn't preparation then, but it still afforded some time for action. Limhi was able to use the tower to understand composition, disposition, strength, and some elements of intentions sufficient to ambush the Lamanite army. Noah built at least two towers that we are told about in Mosiah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. We are told that the one built next to the temple in Nephi had the ability to look into the lands of Shilom and Shemlon and, quote, over all the land round about, close quote. The second tower is described as great. It isn't clear that either tower was built primarily for observation and surveillance of the lands, or that maybe... They were expressions of Noah's greatness in a way similar to the Tower of Babel. One possible answer for the reduction of the guard force may be the existence of the towers. Once the new advancement was provided, then Noah may have felt he could reduce manpower and a drain on the taxes that required personal sacrifice on the part of his subjects and probable government support of the men who were serving. The importance of Zenith's words is the benefit that comes from an aggressive and successful intelligence program. Later Nephite military commanders and rulers will establish similar programs to know what is occurring in both the political and military spheres of their opponents. We should do the same. I, of course, not, I'm not speaking politically or militarily, but I am speaking personally and spiritually that we need to have an understanding of what is going on around us so that we can prepare ourselves. I would suggest that this is at the heart of why we are advised and counseled to listen to conferences and both local and global church leaders. It is also why we are encouraged to be self-reliant, to have storage set aside both in terms of money and in terms of needed items for those rainy days that may occur. All of these are forms of preparation. Soldiers in Ranks According to Age From the beginning to the end of the Book of Mormon, it seems as if the Lamanites never progress in the complexity of their ability to command and control on the battlefield. In the battles and campaigns against the Xenophytes, the Lamanites always seem to be fighting in hosts. To clarify, a host seems to represent a mass of people. It is as if there was no differentiation of organization, no units or subordinate units, and as a result, no complex maneuver. We will discuss this when we talk about the stripling warriors and how they seem to win by overwhelming a Lamanite army slash host that feels as if they were always being attacked in the rear. Even at the culminating battle at Hill Cumorah, it seems as if the Lamanites were attacking in hosts. That said, we do get the use of the term armies for the Lamanites in the fifth battle of the Nephite colony. There is no illumination on why Mormon used the plural. Were they divided into differing marching units? 
was it to express that they had so many that it was useful to refer to them in the plural to express the overmatch in size between the Lamanite armies and the Nephite forces? We don't know, and we are not really ever given greater insight into why this might have been so. The Xenophites demonstrated a very different approach. Zemanif placed his army in ranks according to age. This seems to be nothing more than differentiation by experience. As we are given nothing more than this, we are only left with supposition. It isn't clear in the second battle of the Nephite colony that there was a differentiation of fighters by weapon types, nor does that seem to have ever been the case in Book of Mormon warfare. However, this differentiation must have had some significance because about 20 years later, Limhi and Gideon seemed to be separating their forces into different attacking elements. We will see this again at the Battle of Manti, and with the Stripling Warriors, and at the Battle of Mulek. Nephite commanders in all of these battles, and others that we will explore in the future, separated their forces into different armies, each army having a separate tactical task and purpose. This is a rather modern way of approaching the division of forces. All of this started with Zenith and his use of ranks. I want to offer one simple reason why the Nephites seem to have been much more innovative than the Lamanites. They were always, or nearly so, outnumbered. Necessity is the mother of invention. The Nephites had to figure out ways to overcome their numerical disadvantage. A common phrase in present American military vocabulary is combat multiplier. A combat multiplier is something that multiplies the combat power brought to the battle, effectively giving greater power than a simple comparison of counting soldiers, tanks, or airplanes. Some modern examples of combat multipliers include global positioning systems, unmanned aerial vehicles, and precision-guided munitions. These things, in combination, can accurately identify enemy location and allow for long-range targeting of those positions with little risk for the attacking force. In this way, a small force equipped with these technologies can do an outsized amount of damage to its enemy. Essentially, the small force has been multiplied many times by the technology to achieve greater effects. There are ancient and seemingly consistent combat multipliers that are relevant not just to what the people in the Book of Mormon did, but how that might apply to us in our life. Surprise is one of the classic multipliers. We watched how effective that was for Limhi, as his force used surprise to multiply his army by at least two, and maybe much more, as they drove a Lamanite army away that outnumbered them more than two to one. The Xenophites, in the fifth battle of the Nephite colony, also fought like lions and dragons, which speaks of a will and ferocity that is also a combat multiplier. Another critical element, which isn't expressed in the battle, but I think must have existed, is covenants. As I suppose that Limhi and Gideon were separated, then each subordinate commander had to believe that the other commander and their fighters would do their duty regardless of the circumstances, and that belief allowed each element to fight as a lion or dragon. Essentially, the commanders covenanted with each other. Finally, 
discipline is a recurring combat multiplier. We will see this as it is stated about the stripling warriors who fulfilled every word of command with exactness. Disciplined performance of duty makes small forces great. Warfare isn't about numbers, or it isn't just about numbers. It is also about training, discipline, will, and commitment, and preparation, covenants, and unity. Mormon identifies truths that are essential to our eternal and physical survival. Semi-permanent or permanent security force or standing army. Tribal societies typically didn't and don't maintain a standing army or permanent security force. There are many reasons for this. One is that a standing military or security organization requires a bureaucracy to support it. The fighters need to be levied, trained, equipped, fed, clothed, and housed. This means that other people have to produce the food and things that the security force needs as the security force is unable to do so. The second reason is cultural. Most tribal societies see military prowess as self-defining. Each man is a warrior. As an example, the ancient Greeks did not have a standing army. Each man was expected to have and maintain his necessary weapons and armor. It was what made you a full part of the society. Military drills were part of the social interactions. Socrates used the fact that he stood in the phalanx as part of his defense. The great dramatist Aeschylus referred to his participation in the battles against the Persians on his epitaph and not any of the works for which present listeners might know him. The fact that all three of the Xenophyte kings used some form of a semi-permanent to permanent security force for their kingdom is significant. It is a comment on the complexity of the Xenophyte society and governing bureaucracy. The size and purpose of the force seems to have varied over the three kings. It started off as a spy network, which included what we think of as spies, and also reconnaissance and security forces. The force appeared to lapse in effectiveness between the end of Zenith's reign and near the end of Noah's reign, when he seemed to reconstitute such a force and sent it out to the kingdom's frontiers. Noah also had men who guarded his person, as did Limhi. Noah had a group that he could send to hunt down a renegade priest and his followers. Regardless of the uses of such a force, Noah did not maintain it in strength as there was no force seemingly available to stop or delay the Lamanite advance. Limhi used the force for surveillance as much as security, and he sent guards to find the escaped priests of Noah and another group to find Zarahemla. The guard force wasn't large enough to protect the people from Lamanite abuse and harassment, though. There isn't a straight-line progression of this idea of a semi-permanent or permanent standing army. As we will see with Alma too, he will raise an army to fight the dissenter Amlasai in Alma chapter 2 in 87 BC, Zoram II will raise an army to fight off the attacking Lamanites in Alma chapter 16 in 82 BC, but Moroni will have a semi-permanent or permanent security force 
and army by the time we are at Alma chapter 50 in 73 BC. Armor. In the days of Moroni, we see armor as if for the first time. As we will discuss in the episode dealing with the battles of Jershon and Manti, the armor that Moroni puts on his Nephite fighters was clearly different than any armor previously experienced by the Lamanites present on the battlefield, such that they were disinclined to engage Nephites or so effectively protected. I have often referred to that armor as, a, as essentially being like mutant ninja turtle armor, which should express how long I have been giving presentations on this topic. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe era, the armor should be imagined as something like Iron Man, although not in reality, and probably not even in concept. However, the Nephites were significantly better protected than ever imagined, so seemingly like Iron Man, if you will. Regardless of which fictional character I am comparing the Nephite soldiers to, Moroni did not pull this idea out of nowhere. I expect, as with so much else, he took his ideas from the inspiration of the Xenophites and the Jaredites. What do we know of the armor in the Xenophite period? The Lamanites are said to have worn a leathern girdle in Mosiah chapter 10 verse 8, which was in the Zenith period, which could mean the girdle was worn as a protective measure of a vulnerable area beneath the ribcage, or simply as clothing. The Nephites are said to, quote, put on their armor, close quote, in Mosiah chapter 21, verse 7, as they prepared to go on a failed offensive in the time of Limhi. The comment is made in a matter-of-fact manner, as if there was nothing new here. Why is there no elaboration here? It is possible that Mormon had no information on the details of this armor. It may have been padded clothing only, or strengthened leather vests. The Xenophites also had examples of Jaredite armor taken from the discovered battlefield, though this came after the referenced armor above, so one probably didn't influence the other. The Jaredite armor was of perfectly sound brass and copper and is described as a breastplate in Mosiah chapter 8, verse 10. The fact that Limhi was not surprised by the appearance of such a thing and that he knew what to call it implies that the armor was not unheard of before this appearance. The important point is that there was some form of armor used by the Xenophytes, and that this may have served in connection with the Jaredite armor discovered by the Xenophyte expedition as a source of inspiration for Moroni's later developments. Weapons Zenith provided two different lists of weapons in his personal account. The first is instructive, not just of the types of weapons, but for the final comment, which I quote from Mosiah chapter 9, verse 16. And it came to pass that I did arm them with bows and with arrows, with swords and with scimitars, and with clubs and with slings, and with all manner of weapons which we could invent. Quote. This states that the Xenophytes were using weapons different from the standard as they needed to invent some. It is also possible that the Xenophytes were forced to invent weapons because the previous materials common for standard weapons manufacture were not available to his people at that time. This is supported by the fact that he listed clubs 
among the weapons used. This is the only time such a simple weapon is identified with organized combat. Both other references of clubs in the record are in the case of brigands attacking Ammon II at the waters of Cebus, or Lamanite prisoners seeking escape from guards outside Cumanai. Zenith further identified that he did not simply prepare weapons in times of necessity, but following his first battle, he, quote, caused that there should be weapons of war made of every kind, that thereby I might have weapons for my people against the time the Lamanites should come up again to war against my people. Close quote from Mosiah chapter 10 verse 1. The preparation of weapons of every kind demonstrated both foresight and the fact that Zenith wanted a variety of weapons choices when they went to battle in the future. Just a side point, Another example of the importance of preparation that Mormon slides in through showing, not telling. The second list given by Zenith is of Lamanite weapons and demonstrates that the Lamanites were then using a weapons list very similar to the Nephites slash Zenithites. He says that the Lamanites were, quote, armed with bows and with arrows and with swords and with scimitars and with stones and with slings, close quote, from Mosiah chapter 10, verse 8. These are the two standard missile weapons used throughout the Book of Mormon and the two most common melee weapons referred to. But this is the first time that the Lamanites are identified as possessing all four of these weapons. The innovations discussed here are not limited to those of the Nephites slash Zenophites only. This is an important point that comes up again and again and is first identifiable with the Zenophites. The two cultures were learning from each other. I want to dilate on this point. In the military history class I teach, I use an object lesson with a rock tumbler. I show the students the rocks from one barrel of the tumbler which are somewhat jagged and of different shapes and sizes. Obviously, they have not gone through the tumbled experience. I also show rocks from another barrel from the tumbler that are smooth and roughly the same shape and size that have completed the tumbling experience. The analogy that I am drawing is that modern Europe, for the case of the class that I teach, from 1500 or so through World War II is a form of rock tumbler where various armies in Europe are thrown against each other in near continuous combat. As a result of the 400 years of military friction, almost every army enters World War I carrying essentially the same weapons, wearing similar uniforms, and having a similar view of how war is to be fought. They are the metaphorical rocks from the second barrel. They have been tumbled together, and as a result, they learned from each other. No innovation could or did last for long, because if it gave an advantage to one army, then the other army would rapidly adopt or adapt to that innovation so that it became less effective. This happened between the Nephites and the Lamanites. No innovation lasted more than a generation, and rarely lasted even that long. By the time of Zenith, the Nephites and the Lamanites all are using bows and arrows, slings and stones, swords and scimitars. The fact that Zenith and successors 
used armies that employed missile and melee weapons implies the combination of weapons in the attack and defense. We will never really get a solid viewing of how this was employed throughout the entirety of the record. Despite this simple sophistication, this is not to imply that this army, or even later ones, combined all forms of arms as did their Near Eastern predecessors or contemporaries. What we see with the Xenophytes and throughout the Book of Mormon appears to be a basic level use of the two primary weapon types, missile and melee. Chief Captain Noah sent his army to battle, as did Limhi. Zenith led his army. The difference was striking and a cultural step. The idea of having a military leader who was separate from the political leader was not uncommon in the Kingdom of Judah or other Mediterranean or Levantine military powers by the time Nephi left the city, Jerusalem, but to this point in the Nephite culture, it seemed that the two roles were manifested in the same person. Limhi probably led the fifth defense of the Nephite colony, but later he sent his army out three times without himself seeming to accompany them. It is not clear, but possibly the leader was Gideon. Like with other Xenophyte innovations, this wasn't a straight line of change, as Alma too will be simultaneously the political, military, and religious leaders of the Nephites, but he is the last person in the Book of Mormon chronology to hold all three positions at once. Following Alma II stepping down as the chief judge, Nephiha designates Zoram II to be a chief captain to deal with a specific problem in 81 BC, as we are told in Alma chapter 16, verse 5. From that point forward, it seems to be all about having a chief captain in charge of the military affairs. It is also important to note that Alma II had subordinate captains under him in command, so maybe it was regularly common to have war captains, and typically the political leader became the chief captain until Nephiha. Either way, the Xenophytes started this aspect as well. Stratagems I ask you to remember that a stratagem is essentially a trick or a particular advantage for that particular battle. The stories of the Greek and Persian wars are filled with various stratagems being played by either the Greeks or the Persians. We will discuss a variety of stratagems throughout this series. We have already seen several. The biggest stratagem of them all in this section was the use of a large-scale ambush to surprise and shock the Lamanite army. Essentially, this stratagem won the battle. We discussed this in depth in the last episode. I want to remind the listener of the two other stratagems that were useful in achieving a desired objective. Now, this is an important point. Winning in conflict can be an odd thing, as one opponent might win a battle and lose the overall conflict. Winning is when one side concedes desired interests or influence to the other. We will see the use of wine to get Lamanite guards drunk on more than one occasion, a form of winning, if you will. The first such occasion came in the escape of the Xenophytes led by King Limhi from the city of Nephi to the city of Zarahemla. Later, Moroni used a similar technique to regain the city of Gid as described in Alma chapter 55 verses 4 to 15. 
The second stratagem of note was the use of women to soften the hearts of Lamanite attackers. There are two instances of this stratagem to ensure the safety of a society. The first was the protection of the people of Limhi after Noah fled, and the second was the preservation of the priests of Noah once discovered by the Lamanite army. There is much that can be inferred about gender relations that are typically unmentioned in the record. For example, it is uncertain what happened after the Xenophyte daughters pleaded for the protection of their people. Were they taken captive by the Lamanites or allowed to remain with their families? Was this a simple case of appealing for calmer heads to prevail and appealing to the natural reticence of a man to kill a woman? I assume that they were left with their families as nothing more was said about it. If so, then this implies a certain sense of rules of war. Who was a legitimate target and who or what was legitimate for capture? Later on, we will see that Lamanite fighters did take Nephite civilians captive to bring them back to the land of Nephi, and we will hear from the anti-Nephi-Lehi's that slavery was a thing in the Lamanite and Nephite societies, though Mosiah too made it illegal for Nephites. Clearly, the Lamanites had a taboo of killing women that was affected by this pleading, and as such, the Xenophites were preserved. It is also a bit more muddled on why the Lamanites didn't take the pleading women captive. I would suggest that because the entire Xenophyte community became tributary to the Lamanites, that, in effect, the Xenophytes were already a form of slave for the Lamanites. Strategy slash maneuver. Strategy is a plan for solving a problem, and it takes into account the desired end state, the resources available to accomplish the objective, and the method or approach for using the resources available. It is a way of thinking about war that is done by those responsible for the conduct of the war. At the most basic level, strategy could be interpreted as cunning Group hunting requires coordination and cunning to trap and then kill a large animal. It is this sort of cunning, I think, that Mormon was probably referring to when he said that the Lamanites, and I quote from Mosiah chapter 24, verse 7, began to be a cunning and a wise people, as to the wisdom of the world, yea, a very cunning people, delighting in all manner of wickedness and plunder, close quote. Cunning was linked to the Lamanite ability to write and have a common language to communicate more and more complex ideas. The priests of Noah, led by Amulon, were the ones who taught the Lamanites a common written and spoken language. Later Lamanite armies ceased the simple raid and massed attacks of a host, but employed complex strategy to force the Nephites to fight in multiple places nearly simultaneously and they conducted detailed negotiations with their opponents. There is no coincidence that so much of what we see in the era of Moroni was first seen among the Xenophytes. The importance of technological transference cannot be overstated. Apparently, prior to the teaching by the priests of Noah, the Lamanites did not use a written language. With a written language came the ability to maintain a bureaucracy and organize a larger administrative and governed area. It also had the positive influence of allowing a greater success of teaching the gospel using a common scriptural record. 
Without this attribute, the Lamanites could not have had the spiritual growth they later enjoyed, nor could they have begun a multi-generational period of conquest. Just War The Xenophytes did not go to war on a whim. In each of the eight times that the Xenophytes go up to battle, there is a reason behind it that is accepted by the voice of the people. In Zenith's reign, his people were attacked, and the Xenophytes responded on two occasions. During Noah's reign, he sent guards in response to Lamanite raids who were attacked, and then Noah sent the army in response. In Limhi's reign, the army was sent into battle to protect the kingdom from a known attack. It was also sent against the Lamanites to stop harsh and brutal treatment of the people on three separate occasions. Though the wording is such that the king sends the army, in each case this seems to be well within the will of the people, or in the case of survival, it would certainly be the people's will. The only time the army was sent to fight where there did not seem to be public consensus was against the people of Alma, who fled without a fight. In this case, the record specifically mentioned the divisions among the people. Here is the anecdotal beginning of the definition of the Nephite tradition of just war. In future instances, Mormon will explain it more fully. Even Noah, a wicked ruler, was not comfortable simply sentencing a man to death because of personal offense. He went to extreme measures to create a charge sufficient to warrant a death sentence for Abinadi. Alma was easier as he clearly seemed to be committing sedition, if not treason, as he encouraged some form of spiritual, if not physical, separation from the Xenophyte state. Even in that case, many of the people did not support Noah in his desire to have Alma and his people killed. The law of the land was a religious law. The charge for which Abinadi was killed was a religious charge, blasphemy. The priests were the judges, as well as the ones responsible for the spiritual education of the people. With the return of the Xenophytes to Zarahemla and Alma and his people, there will be a separation established between church and state, but in this period they were the same. We come to the end of all these new things given us by the Xenophytes. Many of these ideas were adopted and inculcated in Nephite war practice. The transfer of ideas and innovations from a group like the Xenophytes who had developed for three generations in isolation to the larger group of Nephites makes sense. The Xenophytes were forced to think outside the standard conceptualization for nearly everything. They could not rely on how things had always been done. They, like nearly all colonists before them, had to be innovators to survive and compete with a hostile neighbor. This open-minded approach came back with them, and their ideas and actions influenced how the Nephites were governed, the separation of church and state, the teaching and spreading of the gospel, and the use and application of military science. It was in this incubator of ideas that many Nephite concepts were born, and will be manifest in many of the best-known stories of the Book of Mormon. There is a reason why Mormon included so much of this story in his abridgment, and he did not do the same with other Nephite colonies. As a historian, he saw the impact of this period and knew it needed to be recorded. 
The next episode is a summary of the Jaredite lessons and legacy. The record from the Book of Ether is significantly abridged and therefore it is difficult to draw out too much detail. That is why we'll discuss this entire book in only one episode. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and to send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.